Well, we're working our way through the epistles of Jesus, seven letters in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. We come to the second, to the last one, the penultimate one, uh, the letter to Philadelphia. Not the Philadelphia that's in Pennsylvania, of course, but the Philadelphia that's in Asia Minor, or was, isn't there any longer. Um, and uh, there's a couple points, you know, we're coming close to the end, and there's a few things I'd like to say about sort of the letters as a whole. Just a couple this morning before we actually read the passage and, um, and look at what it has to say. Um, the first is that I'd like to remind us where we started. Um, and this really goes back to June when, we, when I preached at the uh, ordination service for our new elders. In, from Revelation chapter 1. In that chapter, we, the Apostle John has a vision of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is walking amongst seven lampstands, which represent these seven churches that the letters go out to. It says that specifically. And Jesus there is depicted in his high priestly role as one who is overseeing the lampstands as the priest did in the Old Testament temple. And he would he would fuel those lamps, lampstands, and he would trim them, and he would repair them as necessary. And at times, he would even remove them when they weren't functioning properly and replace them. And so, that's what we're seeing here. Jesus is tending to his churches. And how does he tend to his churches here? It's through these letters. These letters are Jesus' works to deal with his churches according to how they're doing, how they're shining for Jesus in the world. He rebukes them at times and corrects them. He encourages them and affirms them. He challenges them to stand firm and not grow weary in the face of opposition, persecution, false teaching and trouble. Think about the significance of these words that we've been reading in Revelation 2 and 3. Here's Jesus. He comes to the earth. He does mighty miracles and teaches wonderful things for three years. And then he dies on the cross and he's raised on the third day. And then he spends... 40 more days with his disciples and with others as well, preparing them and teaching them as he's getting ready to, for them to be sent out as his apostles, his sent ones, which is what apostles means. And then he ascends to heaven. And after 10 days, the Holy, he pours out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost upon his church. And then for 60 plus years, the apostles labor by the power of the Holy Spirit to plant churches all over the Roman world, to make foundational decisions, and to write the New Testament. All through this time, Jesus is still speaking, but through his apostles. But then, right before the last apostle dies, 
right before the last piece of the New Testament is put in place, Jesus once again, for the final time, speaks personally and directly to his people. And what does he do? What does he say? Who does he talk to? He talks to his local churches. And what is the nature of what he says to them here in these seven letters? What's he concerned about? How the local churches are doing. How they're being faithful. How they've gotten off track. Of all the problems in the world that Jesus could have addressed, all the disease, the war, the injustice, the poverty, what is Jesus worrying about? The state of his churches. How they're doing. What they're believing. How they're acting. Who they're listening to. What they're focused on. Do you see how close to the heart of Jesus is the welfare of his churches? He is always in the midst of his churches keenly aware of how they are doing and working towards their welfare. The other thing that I wanted to uh, point out to you, sort of stepping back and looking at this from a distance, is that there are two primary problems as we look at these seven letters that the churches are dealing with, at at least at this time. But I think they're, they're really representative of the two problems the church deals with most of all throughout the ages. The two problems. One is the opposition and persecution of a society that's hostile to Christ. And the second is the temptation to indulge in the sinful securities and pleasures of that society. These two same problems, I think, I just found it fascinating and I think it would be for your edification to point this out. These are the uh, two problems are also depicted in Christ's parable of the sower. Now of course you have four places where the seed falls in the parable of the sower. The roadside represents those who never listen or receive it in the first place. The good soil represents those who respond and continue undeterred. But the other two represent these two struggles. The rocky soil represents the persecution of the hostile society. When Jesus is interpreting the parable, this is what the language he uses in Matthew 13, 21 to talk about the seed sown among the rocky soil. He has no root in himself, but endures for a while And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So there's the persecution, the opposition of a hostile society. And then the seed sown among the thorns represents the person who is overcome by the temptation to indulge in the pleasures and securities of the world. Listen to what Jesus says in interpreting the parable in Matthew 13, 22. As for what was sown among thorns, he says, 
This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So really what Jesus is saying in in all these is really the same thing he said earlier. Pointing it out in more specific ways. But the principle is the same. Now, we come to the letter to Philadelphia today. And we're going, the theme that we're going to focus on is represented in the first half of this letter. So I'm going to read the whole thing. But give me your attention very well in these first three verses, 7, 8, and 9. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So these are his words now. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have not kept my I'm sorry, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so if you're paying attention, the first thing that uh, hits you when you read this has to do with this door. Jesus first introduces himself as the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens which is virtually a direct quote from Isaiah 22:22, a prophetic passage about the Messiah coming. And then he goes on to say, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door and no one is able to shut. That no one is able to shut. Now, He has nothing negative to say to them. This is one of the two letters, the second and the sixth. He has nothing negative to say to them at all. There's no no reason to correct them. He He says, I know your works. But then he says, and therefore, I have set before you an open door. He clearly thinks very highly of them. And this is really the heart of the letter. But what is this open door? Well, to really grasp what the open door is, we need to know two things. First, we need to understand the gospel background 
to what he says. And second of all, we need to understand the circumstance behind what he's saying here. So let's first talk about the gospel background. When Jesus calls himself the key of David and the one who shall open and no one shall shut. When Jesus says to the believers in Philadelphia that he has set before them an open door which no one is able to shut. We can only understand this if we understand that this is gospel imagery, salvation imagery, that, that we can follow from the very beginning of the Bible all the way up to the, here, near, very close to the end. You see, it started with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. After they sinned, God cast them out of the garden, out of his presence. And he put cherubim to guard the way so that they couldn't come back into his presence with flaming swords. The way to God's presence was closed. And for centuries, this separation remained in place. And then, when Moses received instructions for building the tabernacle, it included instructions for making a thick, high, wide curtain as a barrier between where the people were allowed to go and where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And guess what was embroidered onto that curtain? Cherubim. Again, reflecting this barrier. God had sent them away and the cherubim are there to prevent them from coming back into his presence. But then... Astonishingly, at the moment Jesus died on the cross, that temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. That, this is not a shower curtain. This is not a bed sheet that you, know, you could get a little beginning and you could rip with your hands. This is something that no man could ever think of tearing with his own hands. And yet it was torn from top to bottom at the very moment Jesus died on the cross. This symbolized God finally opening the door of his presence to mankind. Why at this moment? Because the door is open by means of the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus says, I am the door in John chapter 10. He is the way back in to the presence of God for man that was sent out and rejected by God from the beginning. Almost from the beginning. Therefore, brothers, the book of Hebrews says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith. This is the gospel. But there's more to why Jesus specifically says to the church at Philadelphia, that he has set before them an open door. This isn't just something he says to everyone. 
doesn't say to the other churches. And that means that we need to understand the circumstance that is the background for this passage as well. Now there's a circumstance that the believers of Philadelphia seemed to be experiencing, which we have only subtle hints of in this letter, but which explains perfectly everything Jesus says. So I don't want to sound like, you know, this is the word of God as if it's, it's said explicitly, but there's so many hints and it makes so much sense that I would commend it to you as the right way to understand this passage. The first hint is that, like the believers at Smyrna, the second letter, this group of believers in Philadelphia is suffering persecution. And we see this in verse 8, where Jesus commends them for their behavior in the face of persecution. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The second hint is that their persecutors are referred to as those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Now we already said, saw from the letter of Smyrna that this refers to Jews who rejected Jesus as their Messiah and set themselves against the gospel of Christ and against the people of Christ. So they're being persecuted by the Jews. And these, of course, these Jews are not just, uh, you know, people that down the street. Many of the believers are Jews. This is, these are the people they grew up with. These are their, this is their church. These are the, their friends. This is their network. You know, they live in a pagan, in a Gentile society, and they grew up as Jews together in the synagogue. And now the synagogue's been ripped in half by the gospel. Because half has embraced the gospel, and the other half has rejected it. And now there's persecution from those who have rejected it towards those who have embraced it. How were these unbelieving Jews persecuting the believing Jews? Well, we're not told specifically here, but I don't think it's too hard to figure out. What was the pattern in the rest of the New Testament as to how the Jews would persecute fellow Jews for becoming Christians? Well, one of the main tools of Persecution, which the Jews used against those who became Christians, was excommunication. They kicked them out of the synagogue. And there's references to this in the Gospel of John, the same person who wrote this book, the Revelation of John. 9.22, the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he, should be put, he was to be put out of the synagogue. John 12.42, Many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. John 16, 2. Talking about, he, Jesus is talking to his disciples, preparing them on this last night before he was crucified. And he warns them that they will put you out of the synagogues. So it makes sense to me that this is what it's talking about. The membership of the synagogue, you see, was supposed to represent being a part of the people of God. 
one of the children of Abraham and the children of God. And being put out was supposed to represent being cut off from God. If we suppose that the unbelieving Jews of Philadelphia have rejected and excommunicated their Christian brothers from the synagogue, then Jesus' response about the door makes perfect sense. What what is Jesus going to do about this exclusion from the synagogue? How is Jesus going to respond when his people have been cast out and the door slammed behind them? He says, I will set before you an open door that no one can shut. They may have slammed the door in your face, but I am throwing open the door to you. A door that will never be shut. And then he says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus assures them that not only will he keep the door open for them, but he will personally make sure that in the end, their excommunicators will bow down to them and acknowledge that they are not rejected by God. But indeed, they are the ones who are greatly loved by God. What an amazing promise that God gives to his people here. Not only will they and we know that we are the ones the Lord loves, but even those who spent their lives telling us we were wrong, we were rejected by God, they will be brought to their knees, they will come, they will have to acknowledge that we indeed are the beloved of the Lord. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low before you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Saying the exact same thing. Isaiah 60, verse 14. So, my friends, have you noticed that virtually every time Jesus commends someone in the New Testament, it's because they are trusting him in the face of some hardship, some opposition, some temptation, some persecution? They are not resentful or bitter. They are not compromising his commandments in order to avoid the hardship. They are accepting the trouble and enduring it faithfully with their eyes on him. Those are the people that get praised in the Bible. Nobody ever gets praised for doing, but for being happy when everything in their life is going fine. If you are a true follower of Christ, you will have doors shut in your face because you are a follower of Christ. Your life will be punctuated by doors being shut in your face. There will be people who will not want to be your friend, who won't even want to hang out with you or associate with you. 
There will be companies who won't want you as an employee. There will be groups who will never invite you to their events or activities. Even your own siblings or parents may be aloof from you or insult you because you believe in Christ. Even your own children might turn away from you or even your own spouse. Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now why should we rejoice when people revile us and persecute us and make all kinds of false accusations against us because of Christ? Because when the world rejects you, you see, it means that Christ welcomes you with open arms. When the world rejects you because of him, Christ opens a door that cannot be shut. And ultimately, each one of us has to choose between two doors. Door number one is the world's door. The door of the world's favor and approval. Door number two is Christ's door. The door of his favor and approval. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Jesus says, therefore the world hates you. It's one or the other. You may wish you could have both, but that, no matter how much, how many people for how many years have longed for that to be true, it's not, and it never will be. You cannot have both. You can only have one, and each person has to decide which one that will be. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. When you say no to door number one, the world's door, then God throws open door number two and says, come in, welcome. Now this door is not only open to those who who seek it and seek it alone, but it is unshuttable. If you are willing to accept the rejection and hatred of the world which comes as a result of living a life of a Christian in an alien society, Jesus will personally hold the door open for you and prevent anyone from closing it. Many will want to close that door, maybe even try to convince you that God has closed it. Many may try to separate you from the love of Christ, but if Jesus is for you, who can be against you? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who can condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That door is held open when we seek Him, when we put Him first, when we belong to Him, when we don't pursue the pleasures and securities of the world. And a couple verses after after this, Jesus gives them this one exhortation. He says, hold fast what you have. You are secure because you are clinging to Jesus. Keep clinging. Keep clinging to Jesus. Hold fast to what you have. Don't let go. We come now to the table of our Lord. And we hear his invitation to come to him for strength, for sustenance, for forgiveness. This is his welcome. It's not for everyone. It's only for those who are ready to yield their lives to him. Even believers in the letter to Corinthians... Some of them were coming in such a way that Paul warned them that they could be coming to the table to their own destruction. And so each one of us needs to examine our hearts so that we're coming to him submissive, humble, grateful. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have opened the door that we might enter into the paradise of God. We thank you for your sacrificial death, which removed the barrier. And now, dear Lord, we leave everything behind and we come to you and we pray O Lord that you would help us because there's things in this world that we really love there's aspects of this world's system that bring us pleasure and make us feel secure but dear Lord we know that we can't rely on both the world and on you. We can't have the treasures of the world and also have the treasures of Christ. And so, Lord, we let go of the treasures of this world and the confidence that you have promised that those who do let go of this world's treasures receive a hundredfold more than we ever had from this world in Christ and in eternity life everlasting.
now, Lord, we come and we thank you for this sacrament and pray that you would be here in our midst as we partake. For, Lord, we know we are not alone. And we pray that we would worship you and receive you even as we partake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.